The Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 9. Responding, perhaps, to a challenge that I have never issued and can therefore legitimately abjure any responsibility for, the killer kills again. The victim's name is Juan Rutherford, 45 years old, a relatively recent arrival in the Nosting area about a year and a half ago. A short, five foot five, I record unmetrically, and slender, 125 pounds, man. Short graying hair, handsome by most standards, at least according to the picture of him published in the Gazette. I cite the man's height and weight only because they may have been contributing factors in the way he died. Quote, blunt force trauma, unquote, most of the media called it, aping the police jargon as usual. But the fact is that Mr. Rutherford was beaten and kicked to death, and at some point the underlying bone structure of most of his face was destroyed. I have not seen the effects of this poor man, and I do not want to, but in the course of my research I have seen close-up photographs of the same brutality inflicted on others. One stands out, partly for the white trash context. A woman asks her current boyfriend to kill her former boyfriend, and he agrees. The man is beaten to death, his faith is trampled, and later the head is cut off, a cigarette is inserted in the mouth, and the whole disgusting installation is put on a pillow. I wonder how people can be so insanely violent. Taking some pride in not being a naive gawker, I accept the hardships of life, the twists and turns of fate, and I do not expect glorious light to shine from all the actions of humans who are sullied and imperfect as I am. Still, dare I say that I am shocked that a fellow human's head could be dealt the same practical injustice that most of us reserve for pesky insects. I spoke somewhat sarcastically about journalists copying the sterile lingo of the police, but perhaps the practice derives from more than, more like self-preservation than from laziness. The euphemism of technical terminology can sometimes convey the facts accurately without conjuring up images of the cruel mess. This is not a day to spend alone, and certainly not with my nose or any other part of me buried in dusty, bloody tomes. I realize in a flash that this is a good sliver of time when my landlady, poor dear, is not napping or watching one of her shows. During my first visit with her, when I first moved to Nosting, she and I spent a lovely hour or two in her place discussing not only the practicalities of my renting arrangement, but also the details of her daily schedule. She's a charming woman, really, though with a distressing tendency to overestimate her own physical abilities. Generally speaking, she should not be walking around much at all, but I have seen her returning from, as she calls it, a stroll in the park, as if her very life were not in danger from a simple fall to the ground, or worse, from not quite making it across the street before the yellow roadster with the inattentive driver barrels her over. I shake off these thoughts as I descend the stairs and head for her door. The rug in the foyer is looking a little shabby, even in this generously muted light, and I can see as I am knocking that dust bunnies are scurrying into the hardwood corners. 
Well, hello, Andrew, she says with genuine enthusiasm. Is everything all right? Is there something that I could do for you? Another thing, she frets too much over her tendant. The old girl is going to worry herself into an early grave. Oh, yes, I say, everything's fine. I was just wondering if you could do with a little company. Her face brightens noticeably. She spends a lot of time alone, and a smile forms and stays there for a batch of awkward seconds before she steps out of the way and makes room for me to enter. I'd forgotten about the utter elegance of her apartment. When I was there the first time, admittedly I was focused on making conversation and a good first impression, and on getting the messy logistics of the renting out of the way. Checks, no lease but a bit of an arduous and dubious signing agreement, as she styled it. In a medium-sized space, or at least in the living room to which I have access, she has managed to accommodate a lot of furniture without the place seeming cluttered or tacky. She seats me in an extraordinarily comfortable old armchair of a deep maroon color. The fabric is a soft, rich velour with a pattern of flowers in bas-relief. Could I get you something to drink, Andrew? Some tea, perhaps? I was just about to put, a, put on a pot. That would be lovely, I say. As she smiles and turns to go towards the ki- kitchen, I ask, May I help you with anything? But she declines with a vigorous shake of her head and a waving finger, the latter of which I am a loss to interpret. Perhaps she misunderstood. I sit back in the chair and take the opportunity to do absolutely nothing, a real luxury for me. A kettle whistles shrilly in the kitchen for a few seconds and then goes quiet. There's a brief rattle of dishes, the fridge door opens and closes, and finally she appears in front of me with a little tray of the lights. Let me take that, I say gallantly. Thank you. She sits in a chair beside me and sets out a cup and saucer for each of us. The pouring is a careful operation. She tips the pot slowly with her right hand and places the index finger of her left on the lid of the pot so that it won't fall off. The cup's full. She sets the pot down and fans her hand over a plate of assorted biscuits, apparently shortbread with some of them covered in chocolate. That's so nice of you, I say, taking one of each and setting them on my napkin on the coffee table. We both settle back in our chairs. That's a terrible business about the murders, though, she says, as if the domestic comfort of our situation demands to be counterbalanced with harsh reality. Yes, I say, hard to know what to make of it. Are you okay? I mean, you're not nervous about just going about your daily life, are you? She laughs. Oh, no, I don't think like that. I'm an old lady, as you can see, but I don't worry about that kind of thing. When the good Lord feels that it is time for him to call me home, then that will be my time. Until that happens, she takes a bit of cookie and then a sip of tea as if to emphasize her point. I'll go on living my life as I always have. That seems like an eminently healthy outlook, I tell her sincerely, sipping my own tea. It is exquisite, I notice, and attribute that to practice. Tell me, she says, her stare more piercing than I've seen it in other interactions with her. This book you are writing, this, it is a book, is it? Yes, I assure her. Well, she is shaking her head and her lips are pursed. 
Are you managing to find anything out? Have you come across anything that the police have not been able to? A lot of people ask me that, and I wish I could say yes, but no, so far I haven't found out much. She shakes her head at that, as if she is a bit disappointed in me. She's not, I don't think, but I am feeling a bit rattled with the very fact of the multiple murders and consequently having difficulty interpreting her mannerisms. Let me tell you a little story, Andrew, if I may. Of course, when I was a child, I had faith in everything. God, of course, and my friends, and the fact that my parents would be always around, and generally that I was living in a good and safe world. Firemen rescuing your cat from a tree, policemen patting you on the head and letting you see inside their cars, that kind of thing. Now I am af- now I am afraid. I don't believe in many of those things, and though I am not implying that you do either, yet I have note to mention one or two of them in particular. The police, dearest Andrew, oh, the police. I have little confidence in their ability to find criminals, to treat evidence with respect, to treat people with respect. You know the stories. Things have been good here in Nosting only because nothing has really happened before these murders, and so the police have had quite an easy time of it, if I may say so. Now that a real crime has, now that real crimes have happened, I am not sure they should they they know what to, what they are doing or what they should do. You know how they say that for murder, the killer is always the last person you suspect? The butler did it kind of thing? Same with the police, I believe. I mean, they can be incompetent boobies just like anyone else in any other profession, especially the ones in this town. I'm sorry, I sound bitter. I'm not really, just practical. She picks up her cup and takes a long, slow sip Her smile is impenetrable. I can't tell if she's nervous or guilty or pleased with herself. We both let the silence just sit there between us, both comfortable with it. Or at least I can speak for myself and say that I am genuinely happy to be here in her wordless presence. Later that evening, I meet Rachel at the library. It's late and not very busy on a Wednesday night, and she has told me that she will be able to devote more time to helping me with my research. I should note here, as I did perhaps somewhat peevishly with her, that I am quite familiar with how to carry out research. Methods, ethics, tools, the whole gamut. It was the stickler in me and not the potential friend who even bristled at the suggestion that I needed help, and moreover who insisted on pointing out this fact. What she could show me, I explained to her, were the various unique local resources that the library might have about the town that could help me profile or identify a killer. It's a long shot, but you could really help me there, I said, truthfully, but mostly to assuage any hurt feelings I may have inadvertently caused. She finishes with the library patron, just over there by the microphone reader, as I am walking up to her at the desk. Her smile is weak, almost perfunctory, and my first fear is that I have hurt her feelings. Are you all right? I ask. Does it show that badly? I'm sorry. It's been a tough, it's been tough here today. I pause, wondering why that would be, and of course it's the obvious that I ignored in my narrow pursuit of my immediate goal. Another person, a fourth, has been killed. This makes me more determined than ever, she says. 
Right, I reply a little awkwardly. One of the main things I wanted to show you is the file we keep on all the previous murders in Nosting. I mean the ones before these ones recently have started. She leads me to a large blue binder just around the corner from the city directories, and as she points out, generally within view of the reference desk. People are weird. We've got this thing security stripped and everything, but we don't want anyone just walking away with it. I mean, it's all online too, but I'll point you to that if you haven't come across it already. But it's a bit of a pain to be printing this whole thing out again. We sit down at a table and Rachel leafs through it, narrating as she goes. It's a collection of clippings relating to murders dating back about 15 years, but also with some original research and commentary by library staff. As you can see, it's a manageable size. We've been lucky, up till now, in Nosting. There haven't been that many murders. If my memory is right, I think we basically have less than one a year. This latest spate is really screwing our average, she laughs. Sorry, that's not really very funny. She looks at me, trying to gauge I am not sure what, and I return her gaze. She looks down and then up again when something else occurs to her. Oh, I mentioned about online. This whole binder is digitized and on our website. Just click on the Nostings Pass link and that should lead you right there. I guess my idea wasn't that the killer would be among the guys in the binder, but who knows what kind of clues there might be. I don't know, like something from the former police investigations or some forensic detail or something like that. I now sincerely regret my finickiness over an imagined slight to my research abilities. This lovely, dependable woman has already provided me with a trove that I would not have discovered on my own and that would have taken me a lifetime to compile. I'm impressed by her selfless dedication to organized information, by her lack of any agenda other than providing service to a half-patron, half-acquaintance whom she barely knows really. There's more, she says, her voice now with the excited tone of a child rummaging through a toy store. She stands up and is nearly rounding another bay of books before I can muster enough sense to follow her. I arrive slightly breathless, must do more walks along the lake, and this time she is standing next to a bank of three computers. We keep a few DVDs here that are, I guess, strictly speaking, in violation of copyright, but they serve a good purpose, and I don't think we're costing anyone any money, and I think the networks know about it. So, anyway, enough with the caveats. We're basically, we basically copied the television coverage of various murders onto DVDs, and again, I think these might be a long shot for you, but there might be something there. Who knows? And just so you know, we haven't always been obsessed with murder and nosting. With the DVD copying, we've done that for various civic issues. The disagreement in town council over the sports arena, for example, the rezoning for those condos by the lake, the big the noise by law uh, debate last year, a bunch of them. She puts one of the dis discs into a, the player, mutes, and skips it ahead a few tracks. It freezes a second or two, but then there's a shot of a reporter talking straight on to the camera at first, but then turning his head as he motions to a house behind him. I remember this, Rachel says, turning her own head back to me. Terrible tragedy. 
husband fell in love with another woman, and so he killed his wife so that he could be with his new girlfriend. That's the house they raised their kids in. He was sentenced to life, I think it was. I am sitting in the chair beside her like a patient, leaning in while she talks in soft, confidential tones, while she points to the screen as if my life depended on it. I listen raptly for only about half the time, and for the rest, I am somewhat ashamed to say, I just waft along on her cadences, up a little, down a little. She might be telling me about murder, or she might be reciting the most mellifluous of poetry. Andrew? I am caught, of course. I hasten to explain to the reader, though not to Rachel, that this is not doe-eyed love, but just the understandable result of a tired scholar having a long week and succumbing irrevocably to a soothing voice. You've been very kind to show me all of this, I say, and that invisible cloud that passes across her eyes, narrowing them, darkening them for a moment, is her realization that I am ending the evening. You're going, she says flatly. I hope that's all right, and I want you to know that you provided me with much to help me in this investigation. This simple fact seems to brighten her. Brighten her. Great, she says, and smiles a sad smile. We stand up simultaneously. You're all right, I ask. Yes, I'm all right, thanks. It's just that it hits me, you know. It hits me hard when I realize what this is all about. People dead, a murderer out there. I know. I move forward to hug her, surprising myself as much as her, and the sentiment is successful, but the mechanics are bad. We hit noses, and our arm movements are asynchronous. Perhaps... Yes, perhaps we could get together sometime again soon, I suggest. If you could spare the time, and I promise that I won't monopolize your time with your helping me. Dinner, perhaps. That would be fine. I mean... That would be great. She waves goodbye to me as in those old movies where the man is on the train and the devoted wife is on the platform, her eyes to the ground in regret at first, but then up and gazing at her fading man, her arm high in the air and waving broadly. It will be better next time.